Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome, everyone, to Star Trek from the Holodeck. I am Michael Flores, your captain. And at the helm with me today is the one and only Ensign David Sabal. Hello. Hello, everybody. All right. So today we are going to be talking about the final two episodes of Star Trek Lower Decks. Rather than separate them, we need to head off to our winter break. We have <laughs> fallen behind, so we figured let's just combine the last two episodes since they pretty much are part one and part two. Yeah, they seem to blend seamlessly together. You know, from the episode, I believe it's episode nine. Yeah. And then right into episode 10, the the overall narrative just seems to go together. Yeah, it flows. I mean, there are some, I, I don't want to say conflicting themes, but there are separate themes for each episode. But the overall narrative is the, like yeah, the, the same. The story itself, they blend. Yeah. They are... For all intents and purposes, it is, they are, I should say, a part one and a part two. All right. So if you are new to our shows, you can find the podcast version of this broadcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Our preferred feeds are iTunes and Spotify, though. Also, if you are a YouTube viewer type of person, you can catch our live video feeds on our network YouTube page, youtube.com slash Rainman Digital. Be sure to click subscribe and give us a thumbs up. Okay, so we will be discussing Star Trek Lower Decks, Season 3, Episode 9, titled Trusted Sources, and Star Trek Lower Decks, Season 3, Episode 10, titled The Stars at Night. So the entire story of these two episodes starts as follows. When a visiting reporter on the Cerritos puts Captain Freeman on edge, everything goes awry. And then the second synopsis in the season three finale, the Cerritos crew must prove their worth in a mission. That's a very simplistic and awful synopsis. <laughs> that is an awful, come on, awful synopsis. Come on, Paramount PR. You got to start writing some better synopsis. <laughs> I, I should just start doing my own synopsis as synapsis for our discussions. It's, it's almost kind of like it's. It, but it goes on par with this, this it's, season, it's you know, so, it's like up and down, <laughs> up and down, up yeah. and down. You know what? These were both fun episodes. They that, were. But yeah, this season overall has been a little wonky. And these two episodes just add to that thought because yeah. we had a couple duds and then we had a, a big win. And then here we are again with two episodes duds oh no not at all they both worked really well these were both fun episodes that did work uh independently as uh you know as a parody of things we've seen in star trek yes but it was just enough of a mix to give lower decks its own unique flair between parody as well as his own original story. Yes. These are the types of episodes I like the best. I like when they work when they work within it's an interesting way that Mike McMahon writes. It, sometimes they're not parodies, but they're almost like paraphrase remakes of certain episodes with slight little changes at times. And yeah. those are fun. And then he just follows in many episodes, he follows the TNG era template. And when I say the TNG era template, I mean, of course, obviously the next generation Deep Space Nine and Voyager. He follows in those in that formula. Yeah. And that just brings me, even though I'm not a fan of nostalgia necessarily, it just it gives me a nostalgia overload in a way that also it fulfills my my desire and need to go back to that time. 
without having to rewatch old episodes of TNG, D Space Nine and Voyager because he's giving us something new. That's why I like what he does because he gives us something that feels familiar, but at uh -huh. times it is very different. In fact, I find myself Googling certain alien species and planets because <laughs> yeah. I could swear I've seen them before. And sure, and sure enough, they're completely new. He's not reusing things all the time. No. But that's a testament to his Star Trek know-how. The fact that he can create things that feel so familiar and right for this specific time frame of Star Trek is a testament to his skill set as a writer for Star Trek. Well, it's, it goes to like what you were saying. He not only understands the history and the, the nuance, the mythos of, of the, of the overall narrative of Star Trek, but he understands the formula. Yes, he understands yeah, the yeah. format. Like for me, every single Star Trek series from TNG and Voyager and even deep space nine to, at the season finale, you can always expect like a two-parter a part one or part two, or you're going to get that one episode that's supposed to be part one. And then season of uh, the next season, the very first episode is part two. Yeah. You know, you have the to be continued, which they, did, which they did in the past or one of the past seasons. And here, this legitimately taking these two episodes, this is how you would close out like a, a typical season of Voyager or TNG. And he does mix it up because he and gives he us he gives us those TNG era episode flares, but he also brings in strong notes of of Star Trek films as well, especially with the ending of this of the season, just with all yeah. the ships warping in and saving the day. He really knows how to create that excitement because that epicness. Yeah. Because it's, it's such a weird thing with a show like this, because it is a, it's a comedy. It's, it's very small in scope when you really think about it. And yet he can bring you these types of chills, these star Trek chills that yeah. movies give you, you know, when you go to the theater and you sit down with your popcorn, you can expect a, a, a great time watching a star Trek film. He gets, he delivers that same type of feeling time and time again, especially in his finales. Oh yeah. Especially because like, especially with like episode nine and episode 10, he, even though he does all the things you would expect in Star Trek and what would make a fan happy, he doesn't deviate from the story. You finally see his narrative come almost to fruition. And that's a mark of a good, of a good writer who understands how to tell a good story. Because like this whole season has been about the crew of the Cerritos not being taken seriously and none of them trying to take that next step in, in their progression as a Federation officer or a Federation entity and having it all wrap wrap up in this narrative about how the, I think it's what class are they? The California class. Yeah. The California class is actually really important, even though it's looked down upon all those ships are so are, are mean something and they're still important, even though they're considered the lower deck crew. And the thing that cracked me up about like the season finale was like, you take it in parallel with, say, something like Picard, where season one of Picard's supposed to end with this epic thing where all these Federation ships warp in, right? And you see this gigantic fleet, and it becomes a meme and a joke of that season. Right. Here, they essentially had the same thing. They All the California class ships pretty much look the same. <laughs> and... But they still gave, he still gave it that gravitas and nuance because he tied it all in with his narrative, basically making us feel that the California class ships and the Cerritos mean something. I, I feel like there was a message there just about the underdog. The underdog. And a lot yeah. of ways, the writers of Lower Decks, they are the Starfleet officers on the Cerritos. When you think about it, they're the underdogs. They're the ones that are not taken seriously. When you have strange new worlds and Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard, 
I'm sure Mike McMahon is writing these episodes at times with a very self-deprecating type of way in order to express his own. Maybe he's frustrated that he doesn't get the credit that he might deserve, or maybe he's just having a good time saying, hey, listen, we are the Cerritos crew and yeah. we love it. Just like they love being a part of the lower decks and, and take pride in being a part of the Cerritos, the California class. Maybe that's what he's doing as well is just saying, hey, look, we may be the forgotten gem of Star Trek, the the diamond in the rough, essentially. But guess what? We're OK with that. We're, We're OK, okay being that. forgotten, being under the radar, doing some some great things. And, and also there's a bit of. Being under the radar is uh, is where I like to be. So yeah, I think Mike McMahon's a good is in a good position to continue to write what he wants to write. Duke. Star Trek how he wants to do yeah and knowing that he's writing canon it's not just some bullshit Star Trek series that that's inconsequential this is a canon series and I I bet you Mike the man likes being under the radar not oh, having absolutely. to answer probably to Kurtzman every five seconds or or possibly running the risk if he messes up you know someone's gonna take over so I feel like in a lot of ways this episode parallels or at least Hmm, that's the best way to mirrors. It mirrors the writers. It's, yeah. it's it, maybe there's a meta flair to it as well. Well, yeah, especially, you know, like when you put the entire season in perspective, while me and you are both in agreement that this past season's not the best of lower decks. It was up no, and down. It's probably the, the, the weakest, the weakest season. It was probably yeah. the weakest, but when you finally get to that point and you see the, the full narrative, I think the message is actually more important this season is like, just like what you said, everyone down to the writers, down to Mike McMahon are like the characters in lower decks where they're like saying, you know what? We don't care what anybody else out there thinks of us. We, we know that we're important just as, just yeah. like what you said, like the Cerritos crew knows that they're important and in a lot of ways, I think that paralleled beautifully with uh, the story of Mariner this season. When you get, she gets to the narrative point where she gets what she wants. Where oh, no more Federation. She doesn't have to deal with any anybody. But then she comes to the realization: being part of the Federation was what made her happy. <laughs> That's her happiness, and she's okay with being a Federation person now. Yeah, a Federation person. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna use that one. Oh yeah, yeah. I see. I did that on purpose because I know how some Star Trek fans can get. <laughs> All right, so let's jump into this officially here. So, even though this season overall has been a bit up and down, with some really great episodes and some kind of blah ones as well, I wouldn't say they sucked, except for maybe the. Oh, no, no, the no. Peanut the hamper one. Is the that peanut hamper is that, that, was the bad one. That one was straight garbage. That but was straight garbage. The other episodes were just kind of bleh. They weren't sucky. They just weren't as good as the ones that were good. There was no middle of the road this season. There was no like, oh, that episode was pretty good. Yeah. It was like, oh, shit, this was really good. Or, ooh, mm, I don't really. I'm not, I don't I, like I'm not really into it. Yeah. So it did, though, despite all that, it did finish strong. And I would say yeah. very strong. Oh, yeah. The Lower Decks writers, led by Mike McMahon, brought the season to a satisfying conclusion, which is the most important, in my opinion. People always remember how you started and how you ended. Yeah. I always say the same thing about movies. If your second act is kind of mm, weak, but your first act is strong, and your third act is really good. The audience is going to be a lot more forgiving. Yeah. And I think the same thing applies to television shows. If you have a strong ending, people aren't going to look back and be like, "Ugh, you suck. Whereas with Star Trek Picard started off strong. It strayed a bit in the middle. Came back a little towards the end and then just fell apart. And then with those last died. two episodes. <laughs> And that's why people were so angry because that's what they remembered. They didn't remember that it started strong. Yes. 
they remembered those last two episodes that were horrible. Were and horrible. now that season lives, you know, in infamy. Yes. It's infamous now at yes. this point. Yeah. So, and along with all this, the satisfying conclusion, we were given closure to various narrative strands, including the mystery or conspiracy behind Rutherford's implant. Now I'm good. I'm glad that we got this. Same here. But but also I felt like they could have dragged it out. Just almost like comedically, just fucking string us along. It you was think? a little I think it could have worked a little longer. However, I'm not gonna complain because even though they brought the conspiracy to an end, not only did they bring it to an end, but I actually really liked what they did because it actually encapsulated a lot of things starting way back in the very first season, which I love when showrunners do that, when they can bring an end to something that's been going on for several seasons, not just a singular myth arc in a season, but multiple myth arcs. They string this narrative strand, they interweave it within all of the seasons, and then boom, they finally bring it to an end. Yeah. And sometimes writers try to do this and it doesn't really work. Whereas with Mike McMahon and Lower Decks, it did, in fact, work. Because, as I said, the part pertaining to Rutherford, it's been an aspect that has been interwoven within the narrative since season one. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe no. it has been. It has been. It has been. Because, like, the whole point about Rutherford is, like, we never, even when it came down to the episodes of last season with Badgie. Well, Shaq Rutherford, died in the first season, right? Yes. Okay. Badgie was in the first season, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. And the implant, the first hint that we had that something was wrong, was going on with the implant was also in the first season. In the first season. Yes. So it wasn't until this third season where they ramped it up and that they started showing his forgotten memories and they had to deal with that. It was more or less treated in the first two seasons as kind of like, oh, it's just a little malfunction or a spark that would go off a little bit. And I thought that was smart. You know, it's a slow build. Yeah. And, and who knows, maybe he didn't even plan to do this, but the fact that he just, maybe he was looking 25 steps ahead, which Mike McMahon obviously has the ability to do so. So I wouldn't doubt that. Oh, yeah. But even if not, he probably had a clue of what he wanted to do. And he just, you know, piecemealed it throughout the seasons. Well, it's one of those things that even like if you, we always bring up, you know, Rick and Morty and some of other uh, series that Mike McMahon has done. If you look at those past series, he has a way of actually dragging something, just this little tidbit along of a character narrative and carrying it from season to season to season. And then finally say like you're in season three or season up to season five, mm -hmm. it suddenly gets called back and then it gets that closure. He likes playing the long game, yeah. especially if it's like, if it's not a grandiose narrative that's encompassing the entire cast, if it's just a narrative that's encompassing one single character, a side character, even he'll drag it along. Yeah. Yeah. And by giving us the answers about Rutherford's implant, we find out that Admiral when Amigo, which Amigo. I, how come I never real, that when name Amigo. is so stupid. It's so awesome though. Because, was that good friend? Yes. And, and I was like cranking up because I'm going, it didn't hit me till afterward. It didn't, it didn't <laughs> occur to me what his name was until, until I was doing the show notes. Yes. Wait a second. When Amigo? Yeah. So and when, fucking stupid. When the good AI friend. talks, it, it it only hit me when the, when the, uh, when the AI says his name, I'm like going, when Amigo, but, Oh my God, it's good friend. <laughs> That's the best thing ever. It's so fucking stupid. It's, it's so, so stupid. amazing. It works. Yeah. So we find out that Admiral Buenamigo has been at the center of the conspiracy from the beginning. Yes. Uh, this is also connected to the incident with Badgie and his homicidal tendencies, which is due to the corrupted code that was used to make Rutherford's implant, which then was used to create Badgie. Yes. The big conflict of these last two episodes also revolves around this. So putting Rutherford in the center, that's something that I didn't expect that you would basically take the last two, the penultimate episode and the finale and essentially craft this entire story around Rutherford's implant was unexpected. And it was a pleasant surprise. I did like that. Yes. 
because then they introduced these Texas, the the Texas class Texas automated starships that were also built using this corrupted code. And then we also got explanations pertaining to Shax's death and the fact that the AI that killed him was also corrupted with this code. Yep. And then they gave us the reason why the code kills. And it's because they have, I believe Rutherford said there's issues with the emotional processing. Processing. It isn't stable. So that's why they're, what's the word when you kill your father? Uh, patricide. Patricide. So they're patricidal. Yes. And like the, 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 which also makes sense with the whole badgie situation now too. Now too, Killing yeah. your creator. And then like when you get to the very end and the AI turns on Buen Amigo, <laughs> I was like going, I was laughing because I'm going, at first I thought is is it Badgie that's in control? But no, it's it's the separate AI. I was hoping Badgie I was hoping made it was a good Badgie. I, that's my only complaint. That Badgie didn't How make an appearance. How the fuck did you mention Badgie and he not make an appearance? I would have loved if he had saved the day. I think, uh, just like what we said, I think Mike McMahon is saving that chip for later. Badgie is one of my favorite things he's done. Now, this is called. This is this is partly partly me putting my tinfoil hat and doing speculation. Oh, look at you for Star Trek Lower Decks! Now you're putting on that hat. Yes, usually do that on Picard. Well, now because you, you you we're now seeing Mike McMahon play the game that I'm very familiar with when he does with Rick and Morty, where mm-hmm. it's like seasons later he'll b- bring back this narrative and go, "Okay, here you go. This is it. This is why I've been. I you haven't seen him." And but he'll sprinkle things in, and I'm beginning to see it with the AI s- s- uh, set up. I don't think we're done with like this rogue AI element for lower decks. I think they dealt with the Texas class ship, but if you think about it, how many AI villains have they been introducing slowly every single season? And they lock them away. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about it. You're right. You think they're going to work think, towards some grand, like almost like yes. a feature film type of vibe where an entire crew of led the, by the Cerritos yes. must confront and defeat all of the robots. Roll the, the robots, the AI. It, because Does it that makes mean sense. lore makes an appearance? I mean, when you think about it, he's the definition definition of patricide. That would be hilarious. That would be the, I think that would be the, 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 the icing on Mike McMahon's cake. If he could pull that off. The only thing is, is that we don't know as of right now, we're supposed, we're led to believe Laura's dead, but of course yes. the writers over at Picard Ruined who that. are very desperate to just <laughs> cling to any nostalgia they can, because at this point, that's the only thing that show has going for them is nostalgia because people hated the first season. The people who loved first season hated the second, second season. season. The people who hated this first season were okay with the second season. I mean, so they're like, well, when all else fails, throw everything at it. Let's just throw everything at the wall. <laughs> and we're going to bring in Moriarty. We're going to bring in lore. Wait a minute. That doesn't make any sense. doesn't matter. Don't we're worry also about gonna it. Have Voyager in there probably. And D space nine, like Jesus Christ, dude, can do we you, do, you realize, do you realize that that sounds so fucking desperate? Do you realize one thing, Mike? I just realized this. Picard season three is going to have Laura Moriarty, who are AI villains. Oh, yeah. Yet Laura Dex is like dealing with an entire entire narrative since season one of introducing AI villains into their into their narrative. And they're working it seamlessly. Story, well, their story, their, their story. story. Yeah. Well, Picard is like, no, we're going to throw this at the wall. Like it's spaghetti and hope it sticks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who knows, man? I, uh, I wouldn't be against them throwing in some lore action. And then I hope it'd be funny. I, I hope what you just said, that theory you, you said about, about the other AI that would make sense. And they have now been, adding to that collection that prison since season one so like i i definitely think that badgie will appear but do not be surprised if it like is two seasons two more seasons that we don't see him so either mike mcmahon just has a weird you know obsession with patricidal ais and or just ai killers and he doesn't even realize what he's doing or he has a plan and i would probably lean to the fact that he has a plan he and, seems like that type of guy. And to throw in throw in a character that basically might actually fit into that, 
think about, they also introduced the fact that uh, Boimler's twin that was created out of a mishap in a programming is out there with Section 31. And we know that he's supposed to, we get the inkling that he's going to be a villain. The, is it William? The, 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 the transporter twin of Boimler's. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That he thought that died. <laughs> well, I forgot we still have him running around too. So who knows? We'll find out soon. Yeah. And this is the thing is like Mike McMahon will love to play with these long games. Okay. So let's talk about the Texas class ship. I'm a sucker for new starships. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I liked the design. I thought it was a, a cool addition to Star Trek canon. Cause you got to remember this is Star Trek canon. Now. Yes, it is. So I do like that they created this craft. It's sleek. It looks very much the part of this era, slightly more updated. It leans closer to the design of the defiant and the Voyager. Yes. Which is Voyager is the intrepid class. Intrepid. Yeah. Yep. Also, I like the aspect that I wouldn't necessarily call it philosophical, but it, places the importance on humanity, which is very in line with Star Trek. Now, even though these episodes were more designed to be fun and less philosophical, he still went in that direction to a degree when you saw the Cerritos face off against the Texas class. Yes. To prove which one's better. And of course, a machine will probably always be better in some regard. But when it came down to adhering to Federation ideals. Yes. The automated ship failed. Failed. And I like that because it put the importance on humanity. Yeah. And it puts that question to bed. Like, why do they not have automated ships? Because I remember Voyager sixth season, maybe seventh season, when the doctor Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. When transferred he- his hollow matrix to another ship ship that was not being flown by anyone. I want to say, yeah, I think that's what it was. Right. And just the hologram, the emergency, another EMH was on board. So I remember there was questions like, well, if starships can now fly on their own, why are there even manned manned ships ships? And I, I want to say it was Mariner that said it, or maybe it was Carol Freeman. She said this, goes against everything that Starfleet is about. We're about exploring. How can you explore in, in an unmanned vessel? That was my favorite moment. Uh, that was one of my favorite moments in the in episode 10 is because like for the longest time, dude, everyone has questioned the power of the prime directive. This is why we have the prime directive. Yeah. Because it brings in that human element. It, it You're supposed to question why are we out here, you know, what are we trying to find? What, what's the whole point? If you don't have that, if you're just an AI, the prime directive means nothing. Yeah. And just to underscore that point, Dave, because I, I believe you, I, I agree with you. And I, I want to say that was all done intentional because also look at what they, they brought into this episode. One of the most controversial episodes of TNG's run, which was the drug addiction episode. <laughs> yes. If people have not watched that episode or you don't remember it, you need to go back and watch the episode. It is powerful. It's powerful. Because it is classic Star Trek at its best. And you brought up the whole thing about the controversy surrounding the Prime Directive. And I'm over this controversy with these new youngers, young whippersnappers. I'm going to sound old. Getting on social media, debating whether or not the prime directive is even a good thing. Federation probably needs to get rid of it. It's unethical. Of course, we should help people and save lives. But they're looking at it from a humanitarian bleeding heart perspective. Enterprise did a perfect job exemplifying the importance of the prime directive. If you don't like the, uh, let's say, the political aspects of the prime directive or the sociological implications or the social commentary of the prime directive in let's say the TNG era, go to enterprise, look at what Archer does with no prime directive stirs shit up, creates huge problems, gets people killed. 
that was the whole point to show that they needed some type of general order that prevents the interference with certain cultures. It was a lesson Archer learned, a very hard lesson that he learned leading into season two. And I want to say after season two, he started adhering to the unstated or the unofficial general order one or the prime directive. It is an important law. And I I feel like it's not a, a law of keep your head down and don't get involved because I feel like there's a lot of people who don't really understand Star Trek fully that will use that as an excuse. Like since when is it beneficial for anyone to put your head in the sand and just ignore it and say, it's not your problem. Yes. That's not the point of the prime directive. You have to allow a species to learn on their own. You cannot interfere in the natural course or evolution of a species, which to do so in my opinion would be highly unethical. Yes. And almost every level. Sure. You can save a species, let's say. Remember that episode? I want to say it was also in Enterprise where they found out that there were two subspecies. There were a species and a so-called subspecies. And they found out that the species they were contacting and they were dealing with on the planet, the, the civilized species, the dominant species of that planet, they were dying. And they didn't know why they were dying. And the Starfleet, if I remember correctly, had a cure and they chose not to give it to him him. because the doctor did scans on the subspecies and the subspecies was not a subspecies. It was another parallel species that they said in another two or 300 years, if we were to leave them alone, this species who is treated essentially as a slave class would actually become the dominant, the species. dominant species. That was the natural natural evolution of the planet for the dominant species at that time to die out and make room for the new species. Yeah. It was a perfect example of why the prime directive is so important. Oh, yeah. Because through your interference, you may be dooming a, a, another billion people to death. You don't know what your actions will do. Will do. And it's like, I love when Star Trek touches on this subject because like even like say discovery you remember the whole episodes where they dealt with saru's planet and they had to deal with the fact that mm-hmm. oh there's the, the there's the i forgot the name of the species that saru's uh alien species was actually the prey of the one one uh yeah a other prey species. species and a predator species yeah and they had to deal with that and they had to ask them well what is it about like interfering in that when it comes to the prime directive or even in regards to this episode, the one thing that the, I love that they called back on was the symbiosis episode from TNG about the one planet <laughs> literally being drug dealers to the other planet. And then this forces the Federation to do Project Flyby to make sure that basically they can watch over the other species who's going through which roles. And it brought up the question because, hey, Picard interfered in in this species, thus forcing the Federation to take a hand and basically do Project Flyby. Yeah, but he interfered because uh, because they were purposely. In fact, I want to say he wasn't going to interfere. He was going to let them continue to do that, and then he just ended their. He severed their communication. He severed the communication, so they couldn't <laughs> communicate because he felt guilty. I want to say, if I remember correctly, it's yeah. been a while since I watched that episode. So he figured, well, I'm going to end this because they are purposely drugging these people because the Brecken, the Breckas, yes, or the Breckens, the Breckens, the Breckens knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah. And the, and the Narans were basically victims. Yeah. Well, and they were willing victims as well. They knew they were also addicted. Yeah. So I, I love the inclusion of that because at face value, you may say, oh, it doesn't mean much. It's just a funny little moment there. But the fact that they introduced this idea about AI ships not being able to adhere to prime directives because it's, it's missing the human element. It didn't even think about checking for potential life life. And then you have the moment with the Andorans and the Breckens and you're like, okay, there's a point here. They're trying to make a statement here about the prime directive. Yes. It's good. It puts the emphasis back on humanity 
And it's a question that I know people have been talking about for years in Star Trek and our nerd circles about automated ships and why they don't exist they in, don't in exist. a in a society that is advanced as this fictional this fictional world the fictional star trek universe yeah well there you go here's the answer you cannot remove the human element and i like that because what better sci-fi series is there besides star trek to address the 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 to put the emphasis on humanity that's Amen. always really been what star trek's been about well that's the very I, beginning star has always been about humanity always that's why i appreciated that little bit of a narrative in episode 10 with uh the science officer i forgot her name the one that basically the story aspect yeah or the story the what? story aspect where she basically she's the one who stops everyone from trying to beat uh the ai because she finds the micro uh, micro species that she thought she found and they had to stop everything because they were in the lead of the ship. You're talking about Tindy? Tindy. Yeah. And and throughout the entire thing, Tindy feels bad, but the crew turns around and says, No, you did the right thing. Yeah. You followed you followed what your 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 training and you proved to be a Federation officer because you put the needs of that one species above all else. Yep. And AI is not gonna do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that the episodes did was it really did bring some finesse to Mariner's overall story arc. Yeah. Not just for this season, but since the very beginning, it felt like, I don't want to say like the end, because I think we've now said this every season because they give her such a nice little finish. It makes you feel like, okay, they have officially recuperated her her behavior and she's, she's going to be walking on the straight and narrow now. But I think the point was more than that. It wasn't about conforming. Yes. It's almost as if her way is what's needed in Starfleet. Someone who is pure of heart, who is adventurous, who does love what she does. She finds the enjoyment within Starfleet. Yes. And I do like that message. I will say this season was a little, Frantic, perhaps is not the right word, but frantic with her development because there was a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the, in the middle. And it was then, a little stutter steppy. Yeah. It just didn't feel fully there. However, the little bit that they did do, it finished perfectly because when it comes to Mariner, Mariner, they ended up giving her an interesting character arc that underscores her growth and maturity. Uh, her departure was actually sad Yes, in the ninth episode, and it showed how much she's grown over the last three seasons as a character. But as she said at the end, she needed that. She needed to be removed in order to realize how much Starfleet means really her. means to her. And she seems to be on the right track. It seems like she has turned over a new leaf um, when it comes to her, her behavior, even with the, her interview that she did with the reporter, she's the only one. <laughs> she was the that, one that basically said positive things, positive things. And in a lot of ways, she, at that moment, they showed that she embodied what Starfleet is really about. Yeah. And that's the thing is kind of like, I think for me, I was like you, I, I did not, I wasn't jiving with the fact that Mariner's development just seemed to stutter step. Yeah. But when you get to episode nine, I started thinking, are they doing the stutter stepping with Mariner's Mariner's growth to kind of put us on edge by episode nine and say, okay, was she the one to actually say nice things or was she not? Was she the one that basically was bragging about what we were... Honestly, when I was watching it, I was like expecting... Mariner is the one that basically is telling all the bad shit. Right. That was the whole point. Yeah. For, to I, get us to think that. To get us to think that. And I started thinking, well, maybe that's why Mike, Mc, Mike McMahon did the stutter stepping of her development. No. Because like it's, it's it almost, it's almost <laughs> kind of like trying to trick us. No. As audience. No, you don't trick someone by just removing a story arc. Uh, I know you're justifying because you love them. <laughs> well, not just that. It's also I'm just trying to you try um, to find the silver line. Trying to find trying to find the silver line, but also understand is is that a writing technique of his or something? <laughs> and and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna poo poo on your idea completely because who knows? I'm not I'm not in that writing room. 
and I, I, so I don't want to be so absolute, but to me, it feels like the worst part of the season was the fact that we didn't have any concrete story arcs easily, easily. Yeah. That's the problem overall. When you look at the season, it felt like he didn't really want to cling to any one character. The benefit, or I should say the greatness of the first two seasons was that Mariner and Boimler were for the most part, the lead characters and they told the story through them in, in opposing or not opposing adjacent parallel stories. That's how they told the entire narrative for the season through them. They explored that. This season didn't have that. We didn't. What is Boimler's story? No, that's true. Boimler's story is like, I don't know. We don't know. He didn't really have a story this season. No. He had moments. He had moments, but I mean, the existential stuff was good, but that was just a moment. That was an episode. Mariner, what's her story really this season? Don't know. Don't know. Tendy, don't know. Rutherford probably had the most impact on the overall flow of the season, but even he didn't have a full arc. He was just there. He had moments. Yeah. And I want to say, looking at this season now at the end, that's probably what the problem is with the third season. Cause we've been trying to figure out all season. Like, why is it so up and down and they're missing the cohesive character arcs? That's what the season is missing. Even with captain Freeman. I mean, captain Freeman's, I mean, any of the other crew that of the Cerritos, I just you don't like Freeman moments. either after this season. I think she's a, I think she's a, just a bad person. I think so too. Like, I, I don't know <laughs> I if, that, if that was the point then. Okay. But if that was not your point, I mean, how many, she sold out her daughter and an <laughs> officer of her crew. crew. I don't know a single captain, even Picard in his mean days. The first, the first three seasons of TNG, Picard was scary as fuck. We all know this. Oh yeah. He was terrifying, but he wouldn't do that. But even like, even Captain Freeman, you know, at the end of everything, just gave in to panic and paranoia and it's just very unbecoming of a captain. Yeah. I, I don't think I like her after this season. That's this weird part because remember she was actually one of the positives the following season, the, the, the prior season. I think she has some really serious character flaws that are not usually a part of our captains. Now, if you want to, if you want to go with the adage that, well, we have to explain where Mariner gets it from the, from the first season, you know, the, her bad character flaws are just like her mother. So possibly like showing the dysfunction, within the dysfunction the family. within the family. Yeah. And you know what? I would, I would agree with that. And like mother, like daughter <laughs> yeah. type thing. Maybe that's the point. But then that means at the end, something, she needs to be put in her place then. Yeah. And maybe Mariner becomes captain. Well, remember they hint at that where she's basically tells Mariner, maybe so you are willing to actually look at the becoming a captain. Maybe. <laughs> but then would it be lower decks anymore? Well, no. she'll still be the captain of, of the Cerritos and the Cerritos is Lord X, man. The Cerritos yeah. is Lord X. By default, they're all pretty much viewed <laughs> as Lord a Lord X group of individuals. They're the California class. They're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're the California class. It's, I'm sorry. Yeah, you, you guys may have won the day, but you guys are not like the higher class. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's pretty much it. I think we covered all the the main points I did like to see the Breen. They yes. are a species that we don't get to see very no. often. I want to say their first official appearance was in Deep Space Nine. I, I believe they so, yeah. They might have been mentioned before that, but I, they're always so, I don't want to say scary, but they're- Dude, they yeah. are terrifying. No, they're, okay, sc- yeah, they are scary. They are scary because you don't know what they're capable of, and you know they're highly advanced. Yeah. And we know this because they- were the ones that they're the, they were the deciding variable during the Dominion War. Yeah. It wasn't until they were able to turn the brain against the founders that the war was won. If I remember correctly, it's been a while as well since I watched the, it's been like three years, I think now since I watched the season finale of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I can't remember correctly. But the thing that was really nasty about... I may about, not be remembering correctly, I should say. The thing that was nasty about the Breen 
was even when they introduced them and went throughout the entire season, they are the one alien species that no one's really tackled except for the fact that they've always been established as a very powerful species that's reclusive. Yeah. Very secretive. But if they show up, they destroy everything. <laughs> yeah. I, dude, we, we have to. I always, I always we got, have to get some brain again in something like give us some brain discovery. It's too far into the future to really matter. Strange new worlds. Maybe. Now I don't want to get into like a war series again, but it would be interesting to see a conflict. Oh yeah. Easily. Because like, I remember deep space nine, one of my favorite things when the brain was, uh, when the brain was introduced, even the Klingons and the Romulans did not, trust the breen i believe it was like a scene a long time ago in deep space nine where a romulan one of the sayings is do not turn your back on a breen and it, it automatically that just sets the thing that even the romulans and the Cleons were afraid of these the species well they're they i think they're even more powerful than the Cleons, right yeah yeah and that that's what just like you said led to the fact that that was the deciding factor for the dominion war was getting them involved yeah, well, and, you know what? If D Space Knight had Buen Amigo, Buen Amigo. Their, <laughs> as their compadre. That's what I that's what I was like, going, how did Buen Amigo actually talk the brain into actually helping him? I don't want to know. I don't want to know what he did. <laughs> All right. So let's bring this close this this close. Let's bring this episode discussion to an end. It's been an interesting season, it has. to say the least. David, give me your score for both episode nine and ten. You can you can rate them um, separately. Separately, yeah. Um, well, I'm very happy that you know episode eight was very strong. Nine, you mean? No, no, I mean like the, the prior oh, episode. Before oh, yes, nine, that was a that good was one. that was a good one, and it's honestly probably was voted as bo- our favorites this season. Oh yeah, and then. I was worried that they would do the up and down thing and you would have a huge dip. I was very happy that basically they didn't because episode nine was good. And then they went, went into episode 10. It was like pretty much just like what we mentioned at the beginning of the show. It seemed flawlessly seamlessly go into each other. So my score for nine was a 87 and my score for episode 10 was a 89 because I, I actually liked 10 over nine. I liked the theme in nine, which was the whole, you know, mass media. <laughs> I was cracking up that basically essentially in the very end, we found out Mariner got sold out and essentially the Cerritos crew and Freeman were screwed over because the, the reporter was out to actually make a scandal. <laughs> and it made so much sense because it was like when they did the, uh, I guess you could say like the news flash or the CNN flash. It was the atypical thing I, I, I would see in say like Fox news or CNN or MSNBC where it's this hyperbolic and very hi- uh, hypersensitive, like flash of scandal in, in, in the world. And I, I appreciated them touching on that and basically saying that, yeah, everyone got screwed in episode nine because of the media. All right. So Dave, my score is the same for episode nine, 87%. But for the first time ever, my score for episode 10 is higher than yours. I've never graded an episode of lower decks higher than your grade. In fact, you usually grade higher than I do. Yes. I'm giving the episode a 92%. I wanted to give it a 90, but I, I was like going, is it just as good as episode eight? I think it's better. Really? I, I Now, on the excitement meter, no. On a story meter, I feel like episode 10 is better. It brings a lot of things to an end. It answers questions and it builds on our affection that we have for the crew the moment with Shax getting happy that he can eject the warp core. Was awesome. I mean, it's just, it was, it actually has its own. I'm not doing well tonight. So I don't know lots of words. My vocabulary is very limited when I'm exhausted. <laughs> so let me think of the right word to use. It has its own history now. 
Lower Decks. When we really start getting into Star Trek shows, it's usually around the ending of season three leading into season four because it takes time for us as Star Trek fans to start appreciating the history. And now that the show has its own history, has three seasons to, to, that it can benefit from now to pull various aspects and a moment like Shaq's wanting to eject the core and finally being able to was like, it, it was, it was something that was built on this show alone. Yes. It was a joke and a moment that worked because they built it. It wasn't relying on another series and it wasn't a parody of another series. It was its own thing, its own history that it created. And I like when Star Trek starts doing that and it manages to win us over because of its own attributes and not the attributes that it relies on to make it a, a significant or relevant or authentic sequel series. Yeah. I feel like a lot of Star Trek shows tend to rely on past shows for a while. Voyager did it. Deep Space Nine did it. And then eventually they find their own legs. And it seems like Lower Decks, I'm hoping, has also entered that territory now. Where, yes, we understand that this series is always going to be a parody of sorts. But also it has its own history now. And now it can create its own legacy. Are we going to say then that basically both of us are in agreement that we're pretty psyched for season four? As long as I am excited for season four, I'm not, not excited, but I don't want the show to keep dropping in quality. I don't want these mistakes to be from this season to be simply signs that, well, we're running out of things to do. And then each season now moving forward is going to get weaker and weaker. I'm hoping season three is just a, a mistake that there's issues with the character development just because. Maybe yeah. some poor decisions that were made in the writing room. And it was too late to fix them because at the end of it all, David, the most important part of Star Trek is the individual characters and their stories. Yes. Because through those characters, they reflect us ourselves, real stories pertaining to humans. Even lower decks has done it. And you can't do that if you don't create intricate character arcs. All right. So this brings us to the end. I want to thank everyone for listening and bearing with our, our negativity at times. <laughs> we will see you when Picard season three starts. Cause we're going to be taking a break. Yes. We have to I, prepare. ourselves. I wanted to do prodigy, but I, I don't think we have time. We can we, probably we, we, cover we, like an entire summary of it. Honestly. Okay. At least so, do that maybe, because Prodigy deserves that. Maybe watch all of them through. I love Prodigy. The episodes I've watched, it's yes. great. And I keep seeing people just talk about it over and over and over. So maybe what we'll do is we'll watch them over winter break the rest of the season. Okay. And then maybe do a two or three part episode discussion. So maybe three hours and we'll take a bulk of episodes, maybe, a, maybe story arcs. I think that's fair. I think that's fair because there's a lot going on in Prodigy that a lot of fans... We have to talk about it. There's a lot of, like, canon-defining aspects. Yeah. And I feel upset at myself for not covering it, but we just don't have time. Yep. We just don't have time. Especially since it's, a, what, a 24-episode season? Yes. Something like that. I definitely know it's up there. <laughs> so, all right. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.